When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you were to say, you know, Marky, when was your first boyfriend's birthday? And I haven't talked to this guy in 10 years, but I could tell you his birthday is November 6th. That's Marky Pasternak, a 27-year-old resident of Macon, Georgia, with a very special talent. I can do that because I remember every day of everything. Marky can tell you where she was and what she did nearly every day of her life since she was 10. For example... December 11th, 2006. It was just a random date we quizzed her on. In 2006, December 11th was a Monday. And on that Monday, um, the Chicago Bears played the St. Louis Rams in Monday Night Football. My dad was a really big Bears fan. And so I remember him watching the game. What about the next year? In 2007, December 11th was a Tuesday, and I had figure skating practice that day. On that Tuesday in particular, um, we were preparing to go to our first synchronized figure skating competition in Maplewood, Minnesota. And so my coach was having me practice some of the footwork for our team uh, competition during my individual lesson. And the next year? In 2008, December 11th was a Thursday. And on that Thursday, more figure skating memories. Um, That coming weekend was our Christmas show. How about the year after that? In 2009, December 11th was a Friday. And it happened to be the Friday of... One of my first dates, we went Christmas shopping at the mall and got all of our family's Christmas presents together. And when uh, we were done, we went home and uh, we watched the movie uh, Blades of Glory. Marky can offer this level of detail for any day you ask. And it's more than just an impressive party trick. She's one of only about 60 people in the world who have been confirmed to have highly superior autobiographical memory or HSAM for short. I call it my superpower because it's something that other people can't do. When Marky calls up a date, she imagines her memory like a Candyland board. Different days are are squares, kind of like on a calendar, but they're different colors and they're more in like a path form. And the different days like radiate different colors depending on the emotions that we're feeling that day, what the weather was like, all this stuff. So it's really vivid and really detailed. After years of research, neuroscientists are starting to understand the brain science behind this condition. And this may be the key to unlocking some of the secrets about how our memories work. On today's show, we're going to explore how our brains form and store memories, why we forget, and ways we can keep our memories sharp at any age. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and it's time to start chasing life. For most of us, our memories are imperfect. 
They are malleable. And I'm not talking about age-related memory loss like Alzheimer's or other types of dementia. Those are serious diseases, and I don't want to take them lightly. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how nearly all of us experience some form of change to our memory that is completely normal. So I think that most people think of it as it's supposed to be this, you know, snapshot picture or video, some version of reality. And I try to dispel that very quickly and say, no, 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 it's actually reconstructive in nature. It's not a picture. It's not a snapshot. We kind of make it up as we go along. That's Professor Michael Yasa. He runs the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory at the University of California, Irvine. He's been doing some really interesting research about how the brain processes and recalls memory. So I wanted to get his perspective. What is the real evolutionary purpose of remembering? I like to refer to this as the greatest untold secret of memory, is that it's not about the past at all. It's not about reminiscing. It's not about telling our stories. That's a nice side effect of it, certainly. But memory evolved for one reason and one reason only, and that's to promote our future survival. So it's really about prediction more than anything. The reason why we have memory is those experiences that we retain allow us to make better decisions in the future. So when you touch the stove and it's hot, you know next time not to touch it again. If you eat a poisonous berry, you know not to go back to that same bush. Those kinds of experiences in the evolutionary sense have evolved to allow us to make decisions that promote our survival. Without memory, we could not do that. So that's really the purpose. The brain is this giant prediction machine, and memory allows us to simulate all sorts of possibilities in the future based on past experience. Now, as a couple of neuro-nerds, Professor Yasa and I started speaking a whole different language of brain talk. So, before we go any further in this conversation, I thought I'd take a moment to define a few essential terms that we're going to be throwing around when we talk about brain function. So, let's start with the basic building blocks. Put simply, neurons are nerve cells specialized for communication. They transmit signals across our body using chemicals called neurotransmitters. The small spaces between nerve cells are called synapses. And those neurotransmitters move across the synapses to take messages from one neuron to the next. With all that in mind, I asked Professor Yasa to help explain what's going on in the brain when we form and recall memories. You know, brain cells, unlike many other types of cells in the body, are unique in the sense that they can talk to each other. They can have this ongoing dialogue. And what happens with memory is you're strengthening the communication selectively between specific neurons to increase that synapse strength And that really is where we think memory is arising from. So the brain is filled with activity, of course, all the time. It's a lot of noise. And the question is, how do you increase your signal-to-noise ratio? How do you make sure that there's specificity to the memory? And I liken it to being at a party where you're hearing lots and lots of, you know, people talking, and then you want to have a conversation with one individual. So what do you do? Sometimes you kind of get close to them and talk directly into their ear. That's what's happening at the synapse. Things are locked close together. That neurotransmitter exchange is happening on a very close interface to maintain that specificity. I had worked on this book called Keep Sharp for some time, and the role of attention was something that really struck me. You know, the idea that it's not that you forgot where you put your car keys, it's that you really weren't paying attention to where you put your car keys and maybe never really recorded the memory in the first place. So it's not that you're forgetting, it's that you never really remembered. Is, Is that accurate? Absolutely. So that's one of the other reasons why we sometimes think we forgot, but we actually failed to encode 
right? We failed to store that memory to begin with because of distraction, because of inattention. Um, you know, something got in the way. So sometimes we're a little bit harder on ourselves. We think, oh, how did I forget this? This is something that should be so natural for me to store. But it turns out that something happened during encoding that made it actually impossible for you to even get this memory on board to begin with. So if we're sleep deprived, if we're stressed, if we've got a million things on our minds, we're much more likely to be, you know, inattentive uh, in that manner and then attribute it later to some sort of forgetting. I'm just wondering, what do you think is the, the biggest misconception about memory or some common misconceptions? So I think the, the, the first misconception is that um, any time that you forget or you reconstruct a memory, that that's a memory problem. And I would say, no, it's really a feature of this system. Um, it evolutionarily um, uh, got wired to do exactly that. And forgetting is a naturally and perfectly healthy thing to have. In fact, some might argue that forgetting is just as important as remembering. Um, one of the other uh, interesting myths about memory is... Um, you know, it, it comes from learning experiences and, and people say that, well, repetition makes perfect, right? So if you keep repeating things in your memory system, that's going to make it better. And it turns out that it's it's not so. It's not just pure, simple repetition. Um, it really does have to depend on the level of encoding. So if you're just repeating something by reading it over and over, but not fully understanding it, it is not going to stick. You say it's uh, maybe as important to forget as it is to remember. I mean, is, is this almost like a, hey, we don't have enough space <laughs> for more memories. We need to get rid of some things. Or why is it important to forget? So I actually don't think we're going to run into a space problem anytime soon. Okay. <laughs> I think we have a lot of uh, neural real estate that we can continue to fill for quite some time. Now, one can, of course, talk about forgetting in the other contexts, like traumatic experiences and other things where you really do want to figure out how to make people forget. And the problem is that they're actually pathologically remembering and, and not forgetting. So that becomes another sort of, you know, uh, clinical problem. And um, there's a lot of work these days on trying to figure out how to make um, neurons, circuits actually selectively forget those memories of trauma and, and pathological memories. Remember Marky Pasternak from earlier in the episode? She's the woman with highly superior autobiographical memory, known as HSAM. Well, she actually participated in a study that Professor Yassa conducted on HSAM. Marky is one of a, a small group of individuals who have a, a really interesting syndrome that in some ways defies a lot of what we've talked about today. So it's a really interesting contrast. We talked about the value of forgetting and how important it is and how adaptive it is. Well, Marky is a bit of an exception to that. And um, everyone else in that particular group of individuals who have what we call highly superior autobiographical memory force us to kind of rethink this idea a little bit. And when we stumbled upon this, um, you know, quote, condition, we started to see other individuals with this condition. Uh, you know, when we talked about it sort of more publicly, others came to us and said, hey, I have the same thing. Can you test me and see if I have this highly superior autobiographical memory? And in some ways, it, it validated that what they have is real, certainly, that they're not faking anything. And two, it told us that this whole idea about forgetting being perfectly adaptive can't be the full story. There must be situations in which individuals are able to recollect much more massive amounts of at least autobiographical information, and we still don't know what the adaptive or evolutionary reason for that might be. That might be a long time before we can figure that out. 
But what we do know is that there's something different about those individuals, and it's fascinating. When you look at someone like Marky, um, are, are, are their brains structurally different? Is it that they're remembering more, or are they forgetting less? And does it matter to you? Oh, it does matter, for sure. Uh, and that was an investigation that was conducted with this group as to try to understand, can they forget? Is there such a thing as forgetting in this group? That's been a quizzical part. We have yet to do the larger studies of their brains with MRI. And so far, um, it's not clear that there's gross structural differences. We suspect that some of the connectivity in memory systems and connected systems um, might be a little bit more enhanced, but that's still kind of a, you know, evolving story. I think we need to do larger studies with a larger sample to be able to look more deeply at this. And so scientists like Professor Yassa are still studying HSAM, which may provide new insights into how the brain stores and retrieves memories. After the break, we're going to take a look at the curious case of H.M., the man with no memory, whom we can't seem to forget. So H.M. is quite possibly one of the most influential case studies in all of neuroscience, and in particular to the science of memory. But first, I have a request for you. We're working on an upcoming episode all about teenagers and the teen brain. And I want to hear from you. Teens, what do you want adults to understand about how you think about the world? And for the parents out there, have you ever been baffled by something your teen did and wondered why? I do all the time. For the last two years, I've basically been living with my three teenage daughters, and it's been really amazing and wonderful, but at times seriously perplexing as well. How about you? Record a voice memo, send it to asksanjay at cnn.com, or you can leave us a message the good old-fashioned way. Just call 470-396-0832. We might even include your story on the next podcast. Welcome back to Chasing Life and more of my conversation with neurobiologist Michael Yassa. Professor Yassa and I want to tell you a story. It's one of our favorites. It's about a man known as H.M., for over 50 years, the medical community knew him only by his initials. But before he was H.M., he was Henry Malazan. Henry's story begins in the 1930s in Hartford County, Connecticut, when he was seven or eight years old. He was just walking, and he got hit by somebody on a bike. He fell and hit his head. And from that moment onwards, that brain trauma uh, induced uh, epileptic seizures or seizure disorder. By 1953, when Henry was 27 years old, the seizures became so debilitating, he could no longer even hold down a job on an assembly line. So he went to see a neurosurgeon by the name of William Scoville. And uh, the neurosurgeon did what um, he was trained to do, um, conducted a surgical procedure where he lopped out the part of the brain that was producing those seizures. Including his hippocampus, that's a small seahorse-shaped region deep in the middle of the brain. And at the time, he didn't think too much of it. It was a part of the brain that didn't seem to be involved in uh, HM being able to speak or move his fingers or do any of the other things that are really important to check for. So he went ahead and removed it. But it was after the surgery that it became very clear that something was off about Henry. And that's when time stopped for Henry. After that operation he was unable to retain any new memories. 
So any new information that would be conveyed to him, uh, it was almost like he had his camcorder on with no tape in it. Henry still remembered who he was, and he could recall memories from his childhood, everything up until his surgery. And he also had other types of memory or learning that were completely intact. So he could, for example, learn a new motor skill. Um, he could learn a new reflex or, or uh, an, a new emotional association. The more unconscious types of learning, like learning how to ride a bicycle, tie your shoelace, all of those kinds of things, he could still learn just fine. He would have no idea how he learned them and how he got better at them because he doesn't remember the exchanges that he had with the person who trained him. Scientists were puzzled by Henry's condition, and they were also eager to learn what they could from this unusual case. How does the brain work when it's missing an essential part, in this case, the hippocampus? What do you do during a typical day? Mm. See, that's uh, what I don't, I don't remember things. Uh-huh. That's Henry being interviewed by MIT researcher Sue Corkin in the 1990s. Henry ended up participating in studies for much of his adult life. These interviews and experiments revealed valuable insight into the mechanics of memory. So the lessons that we learned from Henry really do revolve around the hippocampus and what's called the medial temporal lobes, the area immediately surrounding the hippocampus, sort of enveloping the hippocampus in that structure. Today, we know that the hippocampus is one part of the brain that's important for memory and learning. But that wasn't known back when Henry had his operation in the 1950s. In fact, we first learned about the links between the hippocampus and memory because of Henry's brain. It taught us about the value of that system to our ability to encode new declarative memories, memories that can be declared, memories for events or facts, things that we can um, label saying, I remember or I know. So those kinds of memories seem to be dependent on the hippocampus, at least the initial storage phase. But it also taught us that the hippocampus's role may be um, temporary, that once things have been encoded and stored throughout the brain, they're no longer dependent on the hippocampus to be able to recall or retrieve them. So those were, I think, two of the biggest lessons that we learned uh, from Henry. Henry's case also taught us that there's more than one type of memory in the brain, and the hippocampus is important for some types of memory, but not others. So in other words, things like motor skill learning, conditioning, reflexes, all of those seem to not really require the hippocampus. So it evolved into a perspective that we hold today about multiple memory systems in the brain. Different types of memory are, are being aided by different circuits in the brain. In fact, most of what we know now about multiple memory systems in the brain revolves around what HM could and could not do. So it was really the beginning of that much more complex understanding that we have today about multiple memory systems. So the impact of that case was really tremendous on the field. How do you feel about answering so many questions and doing all the tests that we give you? Well, I don't mind. What is found out about me helps you to help others. That's, that's right. That's very true. Henry died in 2008, at the age of 82. But even after his death, his case continues to teach scientists about the brain. Through an agreement with Henry and also with his family, um, his brain was donated to science. And it was sectioned into very, very thin slices. So you can create a repository and a resource for the entire field. 
Part of what I love about neuroscience is that the field is always evolving. We're constantly learning about how the brain really works. New mysteries are uncovered all the time. Years of research have taught us just how unreliable our memories really are, even without traumatic brain injuries. And as Professor Yasa explained, that's by design. But memory loss is not preordained. There are many actions that we can take at any point in our lives to help lower the risk of that decline. And it all comes back to brain health. Taking better care of our brains can mean keeping those precious memories vivid and accessible for a long time. So I asked Professor Yasa for some tips on how we can all keep our brains healthy and also improve our ability to remember things into old age. Tip one, stay engaged. Not just in terms of reading and playing chess and, you know, those kinds of things, but really socially, around people, doing things with others, I think is really important, having those social interactions. We are absolutely a social species and we thrive on that social contact. So maintaining that, especially into older age, I think is very, very important and does definitely have an impact on memory and our ability to maintain healthy memory. Tip two, get enough sleep. While we sleep at night, we tend to be replaying, reactivating, and actively consolidating memories that we've learned throughout the day. So without that sleep, we're really unable to retain those memories for any significant period of time. And anyone who's been sleep deprived for quite a while, you start to feel the toll on your memory. Of course, you feel it in attention and other facets as well, but memory certainly struggles with sleep loss. Tip three, move. We've always known that physical activity is important for brain health, but we've shown recently that even just a very, very mild, you know, 10-minute walk is acutely um, uh, able to have an effect on improving memory and retention. Uh, I know for sure that when I exercise in the morning, my day is much more exciting, uh, filled with ideas, creativity, all sorts of things like that. Professor Yasa's advice is spot on, and I'd like to add a couple tips of my own from my book, Keep Sharp. Tip four, Stay curious. Pick up new hobbies, like painting or photography or learn a new language. They may all help prevent memory loss. Even just doing something new, like seeing a 3D movie or joining a new club. Anything to help build new connections in the brain. And tip five, eat well. Don't forget how to nourish yourself. If you remember my conversation with Dr. Uma Naidu from last season, there is a strong connection between your diet and your brain health. You already know that. So try eating foods like fruits and vegetables, fish, whole grains, extra virgin olive oil, nuts and seeds more often. And limit how much sugar, saturated fat, and trans fat you eat. That can help reduce the risk of memory decline. It can help protect the brain against diseases, and it can help maximize its performance. There is no silver bullet to stop the effects of aging on the brain. But it's important to remember that memory loss is not predetermined. It's not preordained. It doesn't have to happen. And that forgetting something doesn't necessarily mean you have a bad memory. Instead, our brains are constantly editing our memories, updating them to help us live our lives the best way possible. I'm going to be really curious to hear if you use Professor Yasa's tips in your own life, what kind of difference it makes. So drop me a line. Let me know. Record a voice memo. Send it to asksanjay at cnn.com or leave us a message. Just call 470-396-0832. We might even include your story on the next podcast.
A couple weeks ago, we had an episode about the power of expectations. I keep thinking about this. We got a lot of great feedback from you all. And there was this one voice message I got in particular that I wanted to share. Hi, Dr. Gupta. Uh, my name is Callie, and I'm calling to let you know that Resetting Expectations was a podcast that I connected with on a personal level. At age 50, I started boxing, and I immediately noticed that it not only brought an endorphin-like high, but I told my husband that it feels like a new part of my brain was unlocked, really encouraging a desire to try new experiences. Anyway, when I told him that, he thought that maybe I took one too many shots to the head. So, wow, did I feel vindicated when you put science to what I was feeling. Thank you. Callie, that's amazing, learning to box in your 50s. I think it's a great way to reset your thoughts about aging. And as science writer David Robson told us in that episode, there's real medical evidence to suggest that you're only as old as you feel. And Professor Yasa might add that you're probably helping strengthen your memory, too. Thanks to everyone who called in and emailed. Please keep those messages coming. I love to hear from you. We'll be back next Tuesday with a special Valentine's Day episode that looks at the ways love influences our physical and mental health and learn how to strengthen your relationships. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Jordan Gaspore, Emily Liu, Xavier Lopez, Isuke Samuel, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park. Our intern is Eduardo Ocampo. Our medical writer, Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.